Hello, I'm Dr. Beverly Wright, Executive Director of the Business Analytics Center at Georgia Tech. This is the Analytics Buzz, a podcast about trends, tools, techniques, and talent related to data science and analytics. Our podcast uses an interview format with industry and academic leaders and is intended for analytics-interested business professionals from the U.S. and beyond. Thank you again for listening to the Analytics Buzz. With us today, we have Dr. Tom Davenport, and we're talking about the revolution in analytics, industry, eras, and trends. Welcome to our podcast, Tom Davenport. Thanks, Beverly. Happy to be here. Awesome. Let's start off with an introduction. And for those of um, for those listening that are in data and analytics, you really don't need an introduction, but um, tell us why you're so cool. Uh, um, well, I define it more as lucky than cool, but um, I... Um, yeah, I was an analytics person to some degree, um, at least in the, when I was in graduate school in the early years of my teaching, but then I moved on to other areas of IT, and about, I don't know, almost 20 years ago now, I, I'd been doing work on knowledge management, and I thought, well, how about all that knowledge that's derived from data? Nobody was really focusing on that other than as a technology-oriented issue, and mm-hmm. I... Um, was approached by a couple of organizations, Intel and SAS in particular, to do some research um, on what were companies doing in the analytics space. Um, They didn't call it that. I think they call it still BI. But I um, discovered that some of them were competing on analytics, and I wrote about that, and it became... I'd done a little bit of writing in the past about analytics, and nobody paid much attention. But calling it competing on analytics, apparently got a lot of attention, and I wrote a Harvard Business Review article about it, um, and a book about it, and then four more books about it, and so... It's a strategic positioning got people's attention. I think so, Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I sort of stumbled upon it. I was smart enough to stay with it once I found it. That's about it. Yeah, gotcha. So aside from the books, um, you also are at Babson College, is that right? I am, and I'm... uh, um, I'm a professor there, a research fellow at MIT. I co-founded the International Institute for Analytics, and I work with Deloitte as a senior advisor on analytics-related topics. Got it. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> Very nice. Well, thanks again for being here. Um, before we talk about the revolution in analytics, let's kind of level set and um, let's maybe go back 20 years to where we started, what would you say um, was our foundation? What, what were the roots? When I started with analytics myself, it was about the time that companies were really beginning to use it to a substantial degree. It was the early years of SAS and SPSS and so on, and it was um, a lot of descriptive analytics mm-hmm. um, reporting. Um, sort of a back office related activity analysts quantitative analysts were not um, at the right hand or even the left hand of senior executives Um, it was a slow batch oriented activity and people might take you know a month or two to really do an analysis Um, and it was kind of a support activity i think the fact that it was called decision support was not an accident yeah Um, so it's very much oriented to supporting internal decisions with, with analytics. And unfortunately, since a lot of executives didn't really understand the value of analytics, I think they sort of labored in obscurity in, in many cases. And that really, I call it that analytics 1.0, it really continued up until um, the 
it's still in place in a lot of organizations today, but it really continued as the only approach to analytics until about the turn of the millennium in 2000 or so. Okay, so the the 1.0 is more, we're just now figuring out where our data is. It's seen as a back office activity. I like that you called it that. Um, Sadly, I lived through that as well. So (laughs) well, I graduated decision sciences in 91, and and most people were like, I have no idea what that means, so just sit in that corner, and I'll call you if I need something. Which leads me to the term order taker. Would you say that was a description, a good description of, um, of where we started as... People would say, I have this request. I need you to go fulfill it. Yeah. Um, in many cases, I need to have you justify my pre-existing yes. opinion on something. Um, and since it was such a sort of slow, I sometimes call it artisanal process, getting the data, etc., cetera, um, um, cleaning it up, which is you know still a problem in many cases, I think... Um, not really relied upon for day-to-day strategic decisions. Um, was, um, I think, you know, in some places like marketing, it was more pronounced than others, certainly. But um, order taker is not a bad bad way to describe it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm assuming that from 1.0, there grew a 2.0. Can you tell us about that? Uh, well, yes. Although somebody said your eras should have decimals in them because they, they aren't as big a change as you say. But I think 2.0 um, is not really relevant to everybody, but we, we can learn a huge amount from it. And that was when the Googles and the PayPals and the LinkedIns and the Facebooks and so on out in Silicon Valley said, man, we have a lot of um, um, differently structured, less structured data coming from all these click streams. And we think it's really useful to know what people are doing online and um, the traditional approaches that we developed don't really work. They're too slow. They don't hold enough data. They um, don't deal with anything other than kind of rows and columns very effectively. So um, all of those big data tools started to be developed. And um, again, mostly in Silicon Valley and online companies um, at the time, um, you had the development then of people who can really um, deal with that kind of data, and I call that, you know, or we call that data scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then a whole new raft of tools Hadoop, Pig, Hive, Python, etc., um, all of which were open source. And yeah. that was um, also an entirely new thing. Analytics had always been a proprietary tool from an um, analytics package supplier. And now it was free and required more programming and a lot of it involving structuring the data. The other big change, I think, is there was a kind of a change in attitude and a change in focus because decision support was no longer the primary objective in a couple of different ways. One um, the focus was not just on on internal decisions. A mm-hmm. lot of these companies wanted to develop new products and services based on analytics. And um, when I first started writing about this in a Harvard Business Review article, boringly called Data Scientist, but somewhat more memorably subtitled The Sexiest Job of the 21st Century, mm-hmm. um, the um, I, I would interview people and they'd say, man, you know, supporting some manager's decisions, taking orders about it. That's the dead zone, Mm -hmm. somebody said to me. 
And I said, well, what's the Alive Zone? Yeah, it's developing products, features, demos, you know, things that we can offer to customers. And um, we started that article with um, a profile of the LinkedIn People You May Know, which was developed by this um, guy, Jonathan Goldman, a, a physicist who had ended up at LinkedIn and had an idea for how to attract more people to the site and retain them. And it was fantastically successful. And there are a lot of others. So the uh, objective changed, I think. And it wasn't just support anymore. These people thought, man, we're providing so much value that we shouldn't be in the back office at all. And my co-author, a guy named DJ Patil, who is, um, I think his tenure is ending this week, I suspect, as chief data scientist of the United States of America. I'm not sure that the new president is going to have a chief data scientist, but DJ would always say, Tom, you know, we have to write these um, people need to be on the bridge, on the bridge. And I didn't know what he meant. And finally, he, he, or finally, I realized he meant, you know, like Star Trek right next to Captain Kirk. Ah, oh, gotcha. Um, and when he got that job at the White House, I asked him, DJ, are you on the bridge? And he said, well, I'm in the same building as Captain <laughs> Kirk, but not right next door. He's working on it. Yeah. He's working on it. So in the in the next era, we saw more tool development, but also a, a shift in positioning. And exactly. that you went from being uh, support and back office into more critical roles that it sounds like drove strategy and developed products and you know had more to do with the business. That was certainly the objective. And a lot of those... Data scientists, I would say, successfully achieved it. Mm -hmm. Not all of them. Awesome. Where do we go from there? Well, it's um, 3.0, I think, is really the adoption of some of those approaches, or at least the blending of some of those approaches with the 1.0 approaches in more established traditional companies. And I I did a project, again, this was um, sponsored by SaaS on big data in, in big companies, and interviewed a bunch of companies that were had, had some big data initiatives. And they were still interested in small data, but they were blending it together with big data. They were um, now viewing analytics as really critical to their success in the mm-hmm. same way that the 2.0 firms were. But obviously, they're doing it a different way. They weren't talking about, you know, um, move fast and break things and calling people hackers the way they do it at Facebook. They're a little bit more conservative about it, but they were starting to offer some products and services as well. You know, Monsanto offering prescriptive planting services with analytics and GE changing the nature of how it supplied services to its customers because of all the sensor data that it can analyze in its jet engines and and windmills and gas turbines and so on. So um, really an elevation of the function in large organizations and a realization that that you can do products and services um, just as they were starting to do that in Silicon Valley. Um, And, you know, that ran, I think, into not everybody was a data scientist, but it did make companies realize that we probably do need a new set of of data science-oriented skills. And you had a fair number of companies establishing data science-oriented roles at that at that time. So um, that's interesting that you say it that way because in one, two, and then until now um, of the errors, you've been talking about from the perspective of the analytics professional, like the data scientist. But now it sounds like in 3.0, not only was there the application of what was developed from one and two, but there was also this recognition from 
the others, if we want to call it that, the us versus them, but the, the marketing exec, um, executives, the strategy officers, the operations managers, they're starting to go, oh, we could actually use that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think that's been a big, you know, kind of a um, over 10 years or so. Um, I mean, when I first started writing about competing on analytics, there were very few executives who really got it. And through some combination, you know, I'd like to say reading about that was a small piece, but a lot more, you know, seeing Moneyball and hearing what various other companies were doing and watching Google. And so on, a lot of executives started to see this as um, a a driver of greater potential success and better decisions and new products and services. So yeah, that that's kind of a revolution in itself, this recognition that analytics can can drive almost everything. I, and it's penetrated all over. I mean, um, uh, I was just reading yesterday in the New York Times about how hockey has finally taken advantage of the analytics revolution, you know, the, the one of the last professional sports to to do it. And there's scarcely an industry where there hasn't been some recognition that this can be a powerful tool. Yeah, no, that's huge. And I'm starting to see, um, as a matter of fact, our next dinner event that we're uh, that we're hosting at the Business Analytics Center is on HR and workforce analytics because you're starting to see the applications over there. Like oh, all these resumes, yeah, you know, and um, it was actually started from a, a project we did with the police force for the Atlanta Police Department to say, how do we hire the right cops and how do we retain them once we get them? <laughs> so data from just all these different kinds of places um, has shifted a you know, not just on the analytics people, but on everybody else right. and this recognition. Right. So that's exactly. got to be huge. Yeah. So from there, um, where do, how do we get to 4.0? Because I see a lot of the Atlanta companies still in land 3.0. Oh, yeah. And and 3.0 is pretty sophisticated. Oh, it's not a bad place to no, be. No, no. You know, it's sadly, as I was saying, there's still a lot of 1.0 oriented mm-hmm. companies. And even in the more sophisticated companies, you find sort of pockets of... 1.0. And of course, you know, we still need activities like reporting. I think the best you can do is to say we're going to make the as self-service as possible and not take the valued time of our analytics professionals and our data scientists to worry about um, reporting or stuff on spreadsheets or visual um, analytics and so on. So, um, but I think 4.0, which has come along quite rapidly over the last couple of years, I even I, I first wrote about Analytics 3.0 in 2013, and um, in 2015, I started saying, man, things are moving really rapidly wow. toward much greater autonomy in the use of AI, um, cognitive technology, if you will. And um, the, probably the best single example of it is um, something I've observed at Cisco Systems, where I've been talking to them for years about analytics, and I remember talking to them about a decade ago where they said, yeah, we, one of the things we do with analytics is we have these propensity models to predict what customers will buy. And I thought, eh, that's interesting. They're pretty effective. Yeah, they work really well. I said, you say they. Does that mean there's more than one? Yeah, you know, it's a complex business we have. We have maybe 10 or so. And then I'd keep going back, and they'd say there are more and more. And the last time I talked to them, said, we have over 60,000 propensity wow. models that we generate every quarter. And I said, man, how do you do that? And they said, well, of course, it requires machine learning. There's no way humans could sure, do sure. all of that. So um, that's an example of the same sort of activity 
but done in a much more autonomous or at least semi-autonomous kind of way with drastic improvements in the productivity of Mm -hmm. the quantitative analyst or data scientist. And now you have, I think, a number of people saying, well, um, we're not just going to do, you know, fast regression analyses. We're going to do deep learning and we're going to do natural language processing and, you know, all sorts of new types of AI, the vast majority of which have analytics at the core, mm-hmm. um, but it requires a new set of skills and a new set of, it can support a new set of problems and um, more and more um, organizations are are moving to that. And I think that's, um, I wrote one book about how that affects people, but I, I'm working on a book now about how it really affects companies and how they build those capabilities. Awesome. Wow. 4.0 sounds sounds like it has a lot in store. So for example, um, we kind of put the whole process on steroids and ramped everything up. Um, We've modified the types to become more sophisticated and uh, we're answering different types and additional business questions. So not just different types, but more of them. 60,000 models. That's still kind of blowing my mind. And then the fourth thing I caught you saying was um, that, you know, those are more tool development and and technical side, but also we're seeing more autonomy. And IBM has used the term, the citizen analyst. Would you say that with the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning and the tool having a lot of reliance um, toward what we, what we end up developing, would you say that the citizen analyst is a, is a real thing? I think it is. You know, a lot of times when people talk about the citizen analysts, it's having them generate a, you know, a tableau um, um, bar chart or something. Mm-hmm. And that is not terribly impressive, but you ought to at least be doing that. But I think much more um, important is saying we don't really need um, a professional quantitative analyst to get the best fitting set of models anymore. Um, I mean, you know, the. The problem with the citizen analyst idea in the cognitive era is that a lot of these tools are not very transparent. Mm. And so the citizen has to learn to trust that these models are the right ones, that they are the best fitting to the data, that even though you don't really understand why they were chosen, that they really are good. And that's um, a bit of a challenge. I mean, I hope we get better in terms of technology um, being more transparent and so on to the user. Right now, there's a whole lot of trust involved if you are going to you know, assume that these are, in fact, the right models to run your business on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that black box really scares me. That's why um, I talk to my students a great deal about um, understanding what goes in. Don't just pour a bunch of variables into a model and call it a day and walk away and check on it in a few hours. Exactly. you got you to really craft this cake. Yeah, and the really scary thing is, you know, we all know models, all models have assumptions behind them. And if it's not transparent at all, you don't even know exactly what the models are you don't know when to turn them off. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the scariest part of, of that for, for business, I think. Yeah. Well, of the, um, this is great, by the way, of the, um, the different eras and talking through the 1.2.3.4.0, um, it sounds like some of the overarching themes that I've heard are huge changes driven by the following. One is the recognition and the pivot away from just the analyst and more toward a broader audience. Second, 
um, and you didn't specifically say this, but, um, but it was, uh, sort of buried within the conversation, which is the technology, especially on the open source. So the use of open source, like maybe, um, isn't there an open AI now? I think it's called open AI or something. There is a uh, company called open AI and most of the, um, algorithms for AI are open source. Mm-hmm. Certainly in the deep learning space, you have Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Amazon and Yahoo have all released open source deep learning mm-hmm. um, algorithms. So, um, and a number of universities have as well. So, I think the world has changed quite dramatically in terms of, you know, you can get a little bit of, of these tools from SAS and SPSS, but I don't think it's fair to say that they're the leaders anymore. Right. Yeah, no, I understand. Uh, so the the first bullet being the others that are involved, the second one being the open source and the technology and the advancements we're seeing there. And then the, the third one, which I actually think is one of the more important um, that I've seen in the past 25 years that I've been in this has been the cultural shift, just the the acceptance, not necessarily the blind trust in the black box. I feel like that's a different thing, but just the acceptance and the recognition and the light bulb that goes off that says, you know, maybe we should use data to better understand how to fill in the blank. Yes, I agree. And um, that's a huge change. I mean, I, I was looking at a survey um, the other day by um, this organization I sometimes work with called New Vantage Partners, and they survey um leaders about big data and how it's going in general it was a big success i mean like 80 percent said they've already gotten a lot of value and only two percent or less than two percent said it was a failure in their companies but changing the culture to a purely or at least to a data-driven culture they said was the hardest thing that they did so not the technology side not the you know quant learning or training or anything like that but culturally speaking that's very interesting yeah and then they mentioned you know middle managers don't get it and the organization's not aligned and we don't have a good data architecture so there's still some challenges but i agree there has been enormous progress in that whole cultural area for sure. And I would like to thank um, Forth that the schools have some kind of play, given that you're at Babson and I'm at Georgia Tech. <laughs> um, hopefully we're um, moving the needle at least some in the right direction. Um, so to, to Yeah, can I just say a little yeah, bit about that? Do. Because I think normally, I think it's fair to say universities are not that fast moving. But in this particular area, there's been enormous um, supply um, generated from universities very quickly, yep. in part because I think, you know, in universities, a lot of these skills were present, just not really appreciated all that much. You had people doing operations research and, as you said, decision science for a number of years. And finally, they saw, wow, there's a market for what I've been wanting to teach all along. And so they started to create programs and so on, like yours at, at Georgia Tech. And we're doing some at Babson and, you know, uh, more than 100 others in the in the U.S. alone. The challenge is, I think, moving along with these changes so that you're teaching people about cognitive and, and big data and so on and not, you know, the traditional artisanal analytics that many, many professors may have grown up on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, and that leads me to our um, final piece of advice that I'm going to ask. Our audience is typically two to maybe 10 years uh, management level, some director, um, um, and they, they want to know what one piece of advice would you give a rising analytics professional to help them stay on top of the changes so that they can respond? 
Like how do they keep up with all these changes? It's moving very quickly. Yeah, I mean, don't don't think that because you got your analytics degree or certification or whatever that you're finished learning about Absolutely. this. You've got to keep going back and learning more and more and um, learning, you know, how these um, cognitive technologies work and how you can add value to them. And on the one hand, they might be considered as a threat to quantitative professionals because they do take over a lot of the modeling activity. But I think any... Um, quantitative person who understands how they work and how to improve upon them and what data sets to turn them loose on and so on. Their strengths and weaknesses, I think, will have a good job over the foreseeable future. But it's really important to get that that learning or you'll be left behind. Yeah. So just continuously learn, be a sponge of some sorts. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Dr. Tom Davenport, for talking to us about the revolution in analytics, industry errors and trends. My pleasure. Nice talking with you, Beverly. Thanks again for listening to The Analytics Buzz, a podcast about trends, tools, techniques, and talent related to data science and analytics. Please connect with the Business Analytics Center at Georgia Tech via our website. And join my network on LinkedIn, Dr. Beverly Wright, Executive Director of the Business Analytics Center. Thanks again and have a great data set.